Well, good afternoon. I am Bob Durkee, the university's vice president for public affairs, and it is my pleasure to welcome you here this afternoon for Lynn Cheney's lecture on the role of civic education in sustaining political freedom. Given your interest in this topic, I hope you had a chance as you made your way to this auditorium to visit with one of the newest inhabitants of the Princeton campus, a 10-foot-tall bronze representation of John Witherspoon, the sixth president of this university and the only college president and only clergyman to sign the Declaration of Independence. The statue is located just on the other side of Makash Courtyard, looking toward the library, the chapel, and these classrooms where history and English and other topics are taught. Witherspoon was a towering figure in the history of this university and this nation, but he is nowhere near as well known as some of his students, including, importantly, James Madison, who actually stayed on to study with Witherspoon after completing his undergraduate work and thereby became Princeton's first graduate student. So in installing Witherspoon, we set him on a plinth that includes three plaques, describing his contributions as preacher, as patriot, and as president. Thus, the installation of the statue gave us an opportunity to practice a form of open-air civic education, informing all who walk these paths about Witherspoon's role and, by extension, Princeton's role in creating the American framework for political freedom. This afternoon's event is sponsored by the university's James Madison program in American Ideals and Institutions. And in just a moment, I'm going to ask Professor Robert P. George, the founding director of the program, to come forward to introduce today's speaker. Professor George is a celebrated teacher of constitutional law whose scholarly work focuses on the principles that Witherspoon, his students, and other founders incorporated into our Constitution and Bill of Rights. In addition to following, at least to some degree, in the tradition of Witherspoon and Madison, Professor George also follows in the tradition of another pivotal figure in Princeton and American history, Woodrow Wilson, who was the first faculty member to hold the distinguished McCormick Professorship of Jurisprudence that Professor George now holds. A graduate of Swarthmore College and Harvard Law School, Professor George holds a doctorate in legal philosophy from Oxford University. He has served as a presidential appointee to the United States Commission on Civil Rights and as a judicial fellow at the Supreme Court. He is the author or editor of several books and numerous scholarly articles and book reviews and has won the Politics Department's Teaching Award, which happens to be named for the faculty member who was my thesis advisor many years ago. Please join me in welcoming Professor Robbie George. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Bob Durkee, Vice President Durkee, for that very, very generous introduction. Before introducing our distinguished speaker, 
Let me take a moment to thank all who worked so hard to make today's event happen. I particularly wish to thank Dr. Shauna Sagru, Mrs. Linda Kativa, and Mrs. Jane Hale of the James Madison program, together with their platoon of truly dedicated student volunteers. I also wish to thank Jeffrey Herbst, the chairman of the Department of Politics, who is with us today, and Vice President Durkee and the central administration of this great university for their generous help and cooperation. Ours is a grieving nation, yet we are determined to defend our people and uphold our ideals and institutions against the enemies of liberty. In the century just concluded, we prevailed at great cost in blood and treasure, first against fascist and then against communist tyranny. As we embark upon a new century, we find ourselves called to fight the evil of international terrorism. As always, throughout our history, we seek to purify our nation by making it ever truer to the principles of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, even as we debate amongst ourselves, sometimes passionately, the meaning of these principles as applied to the concrete challenges we face. The James Madison program promotes both on campus and in our nation the informed and critical discussion of American ideals and institutions. In this, we build upon Princeton's great tradition in constitutional studies, a tradition inaugurated by Woodrow Wilson and carried on with great distinction by his successor, successors Edward S. Corwin, Alpheus T. Mason, and Walter F. Murphy. All, I think it's fair to say, in the tradition of Madison and his great teacher, John Witherspoon. Today it is our great, very great honor to welcome Dr. Lynn Cheney. Dr. Cheney is a senior fellow of the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C., and former chairman of the National Endowment for the Humanities. While she is a visitor to our campus, she is anything but a visitor to the House of Intellect. She is a scholar of English literature, holding a Ph.D. in that subject from the University of Wisconsin. And throughout her career, she has been a tireless campaigner for high intellectual standards at all levels of education. Dr. Cheney is the author of Telling the Truth and co-author with her husband, Vice President Richard Cheney, of Kings of the Hill, a profile of nine powerful leaders of the United States House of Representatives. She's currently writing two books, one for grown-ups called School Think and one for the younger set called America, a Patriotic Primer. Dr. Cheney has been particularly devoted to civic education and has taught the importance of sound learning to the preservation and advancement of freedom, both in our own country and abroad. And it is on that subject that she will address us this afternoon. Dr. Cheney has kindly agreed to take questions following her remarks. Since both she and we in the James Madison program value free speech and robust intellectual engagement, anyone is welcome to ask a question from any perspective, including a critical perspective. I merely, requ uh, merely request that everyone respect the nature of the occasion and the rights of others by making your questions reasonably succinct so that others can have a chance. Questions, yes. Speeches, no. Dr. Cheney, that does not apply to you. You may certainly make a speech. I give you Dr. Lynn Cheney. Well, maybe I do. 
I'm trying to decide whether I need to be taller or not. Never hurts, does it? Actually, this is a, I knew that Princeton was an enlightened place, but uh, I now know it's especially enlightened because you have a podium that goes down to, uh, to meet people who are only five feet tall. I've spent a great many uh, speeches addressing the back row of the audience because I couldn't see the front rows. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. I've been joking uh, every place I go, saying it's a pleasure to be at a disclosed location. And uh, <laughs> indeed it is. I, I'm sorry to have been a little late. We had some bad weather. But then I had uh, the remarkable honor of uh, meeting with Judy King, uh, whose husband, Andrew, uh, was killed in the uh, World Trade Center attack, and of meeting with Iman Chabli, who is the director of the Islamic Society of, uh, of Central New Jersey. And uh, both uh, people are people you would enjoy all of you spending time with because they are so comforting and so uplifting. I'm particularly pleased to be here this afternoon as part of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. Professor George, you deserve congratulations for the excellence of this program. And let me praise Princeton University as well, uh, Vice President Durkee, by giving this program a home. Princeton is setting an example for how people of differing viewpoints can, in a university setting, debate important issues with seriousness and civility. For someone who loves American history, this part of New Jersey is an especially remarkable place to be, a place so rich with stories of our country's past. This month, well, are we in December yet? No, we're still in November. I lose track. Next month, in December, it will be the 225th anniversary of George Washington's crossing the Delaware. 225 years since he crossed the Delaware on that snowy and icy night, uh, launched a surprise attack on Hessian mercenaries at a British post in Trenton, and managed to kill dozens and capture more than 900 while sustaining not a single casualty on the American side. There's a wonderful painting that uh, school children used to know. I'm not so sure they do anymore, but the wonderful painting of George Washington crossing the Delaware by Emanuel Leutze that gives some idea, it hints, I think, but only barely at the magnitude of Washington's accomplishment. In that painting, the men in the boat with Washington are addressed in a motley assortment of clothes. These are, are not uh, uh, uniformed people. And you get the impression that Washington was not fighting with a highly trained and disciplined force by looking at the motley crew in the, uh, in the ship with him, in the boat with him, a little flat-bottom boat. But the men in the boat do not look nearly as miserable and ragged as the historical records suggest Washington's troops were. The painter Charles Wilson Peel, observing Washington's army in early December as they were retreating before the British, had been struck with horror at the sight of the sick and exhausted half-naked men that uh, formed Washington's troops. One of the soldiers approached Peel. He was a man, in Peel's words, who had lost all his clothes. He was an, in an old, dirty blanket jacket. His beard was long and his face so full of sores he could not clean it. Only when the soldier spoke did Peel realize it was his much-beloved brother James. These Americans, going up against superior numbers of British forces who were better equipped and better trained, had not surprisingly spent most of the war thus far in retreat. And that is why Trenton mattered so much. 
because suddenly, in the depths of icy winter, there was a victory. And Washington was determined he would build on it. He moved his troops back to Pennsylvania, waited until the commissary wagons could bring provisions, and then on December 30th, crossed to Delaware again into New Jersey and entrenched his troops near Trenton. Since the enlistments of most of his men expired at the end of the year, can you imagine having to fight a war with troops whose enlistments were expiring? Most of his uh, men uh, were ready to go home uh, as he crossed the Delaware. This actually was the third time he crossed the Delaware. Uh, they were ready to go home. Um, he convinced them with a lot of uh, uh, rhetoric that many of them will remember for a very long time and $50,000 that was uh, handily supplied him by uh, Robert Morris, a Philadelphia financier. Some call him the financier of the revolution. He persuaded a significant number of his men to stay, and that was a very good thing. But you have to think to yourself how these men must have felt soon afterward on January 2nd, 1777, when General Cornwallis and 5,000 well-trained, well-equipped men advanced on Trenton from Princeton. Washington's pickets, as the, the, the uh, British advanced, Washington's pickets had to fall back across a creek. And there was uh, only one way to get across the creek at this particular juncture. The creek was rather deep at this point. All of them had to go back across a very narrow stone bridge. Scores of them had to make their way across this bridge. And while they were no doubt afraid, there was no panic. At the end of the bridge, Washington, on horseback, had taken up a position where his men could see him, firm, composed, and resolute. One of his men remembered forever pressing against the shoulder of the general's horse and touching Washington's boot. Cornwallis was convinced that he had Washington, whom he called the old fox. He thought he had him trapped. But Washington, leaving his campfires burning as a diversion, moved most of his men around the British left flank and headed for Princeton. The first encounter between an American brigade approaching Princeton and British troops leaving it to join the main force in Trenton didn't go very well for the Americans. Many were wounded and killed in a bayonet attack. The survivors fell back, bloody, dazed, and confused. But Washington rallied them, and as soon as more troops arrived, he led them himself against the British. Displaying astonishing bravery, he took his men to within 30 yards of the British lines and ordered them to fire. One staff officer was so sure that Washington would be killed that he pulled his hat over his eyes to escape the sight. But when the smoke cleared, the general was unharmed. The staff officer wept in relief. Washington clasped his hand and then himself led the charge after the retreating British. Now, I'm sure that everyone living near Princeton knows the dramatic ending to this story. Some of the British took refuge in Nassau Hall, which the Americans then fired upon, the result was not only to persuade the British to surrender, but, legend has it, to decapitate with a well-fired cannonball a portrait of King George II. Now, I tell this story, and, and I do so at some length, in part because it is a wonderful story. But I also tell it because it's an important one. Demoralized as Washington and his men and his countrymen, not just his troops, but his, his countrymen entirely, demoralized as they all were, News of these victories, first at Trenton and then at Princeton, James Thomas Flexner has written, traveled across America like a rainstorm across a parched land. 
lifting bowed heads everywhere. So it's a wonderful story, and it's an important story, but it makes a point as well, and one that I want to emphasize this evening. So many of the stories of our country's beginnings tell us that this nation was not inevitable. The founders had the odds stacked very much against them. No one had ever thrown off a colonial power before. No one had ever established representative democracy over a vast expanse of land. The Americans were going up against the mightiest military force in the world. And so much of the success they did experience depended on individuals, particularly on Washington, whose legendary bravery, so inspiring to his men, might easily have got him killed. During one battle, when he'd been a young man in the French and Indian War, he had two horses shot out from underneath him. One bullet had gone through his hat, and three had ripped through his uniform. A few years later, in 1757, when two detachments of Virginians mistakenly began firing upon one another, Washington stopped the carnage by riding his horse between the firing troops and using his sword to knock the gun barrels skyward. Fourteen men were killed, but Washington was untouched. If it had turned out otherwise, who would have commanded our forces in the Revolutionary War? Who would have lent similar prestige to the Constitutional Convention? Who could have been trusted to be the first president and to give up power at the proper time? We are very lucky that things turned out as they did, and so is the world. Thomas Jefferson believed that the American Revolution would set the ball of liberty so well in motion that it would roll round the globe. And he was right. Inspired by what happened here, people in other parts of the world began to struggle for freedom, and many of them succeeded. But freedom, as the study of our history shows, is not our inevitable heritage, nor is it humankind's. This realization should make our freedom all the more precious to us and all the more worth defending. Were we to lose it, liberty might not come our way again. The concern I would like to bring before you tonight is that we haven't done a very good job of teaching our history. We haven't given young people the knowledge they need in order to appreciate how greatly fortunate we are to live in freedom, or indeed to have much insight at all into the American past. A 1989 survey of college seniors showed that more than half did not understand the purpose of the Federalist Papers. One out of four was unable to distinguish Karl Marx's words from the words of the United States Constitution. A 1999 survey of elite college seniors, that is, seniors at schools like Princeton and Yale and Stanford, showed that only one out of five knew that the words government of the people by the people, for the people, came from the Gettysburg Address. Forty percent did not know that the Constitution established the division of powers between the states and the federal government. To the question of who was the most, who was the American general, this is my favorite, so I shouldn't misread this, to the question of who was the American general in command at Yorktown, the most popular answer was Ulysses S. Grant. Now, one cannot attribute this knowledge, this lack of knowledge, solely to a, a failure of colleges and universities. Indeed, the questions asked on these surveys are the kinds of things that college uh, freshmen should know, that high school seniors should know. 
But surely a contributing factor to the lack of knowledge highlighted by these surveys is that not one, not a single one of the 55 elite colleges and universities whose students were polled in the second survey I mentioned, not a single one of those colleges or universities required a course in American history. I have been concerned about lack of historical knowledge for well over a decade, long enough so that I understand that the institutional reforms that would help remedy the problem are difficult to achieve. One important reason American history is not required is because if it were, faculty members would have to teach it. And there is very little professional incentive for them to do so. Advancement in academia comes from publishing, and there is little market in academic journals for articles on subjects that are broadly conceived. What is wanted are specialized articles that are compatible with teaching specialized courses. In not wanting to take on general education, people in academe are doing what people in every profession tend to do, avoiding activities for which there are few, if any, professional incentives. Changing the reward system of higher education is likely to take a long time, and that's the optimistic view. So, too, is it likely to take a long time for every state in the Union to put in place history standards and the tests to match them that will ensure that youngsters in grade school and middle school and high school gain essential knowledge of our nation's past. The fact that the improvement of historical education in our schools and colleges and universities won't happen overnight is no reason to quit the struggle. I certainly intend to keep working on it and applauding the efforts of groups like the National Association of Scholars and the American Council of Trustees and Alumni that have spoken out forcefully in favor of well-rounded general education. But we should also recognize that until long-term efforts succeed, American history will remain largely mysterious to many graduates of our finest institutions. They will continue to place Ulysses S. Grant at Yorktown unless we come up with extracurricular ways to encourage them to know the men and women and events and ideas that have shaped this country. I began thinking about this when I read there were teach-ins on campus. Not very well-attended events, according to what I've read, and little wonder. They fit into an old paradigm when this country was involved in a war with which large numbers of Americans disagreed, in which many, rightly or wrongly, thought vital American interests were not at stake. None of that applies now. This is not a war in which we get to choose whether or not to fight. Thousands of Americans were killed on the very first day of conflict here at home. As the President has made clear, we do not have the luxury of not getting involved. It's time for gatherings of a new kind, it seems to me, in which we remind ourselves of exactly what it is we are defending, in which we talk about exactly what it is we have at stake. Let us talk to one another about freedom, asking, perhaps as a start, just one suggestion, why the founders, Jefferson and Madison in particular, were so determined that government would have no role in determining how people worship. We might take the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom as our text. Jefferson wrote it. Madison got it through the Virginia legislature. In this remarkable time in which we live, any of us can get it off the Internet and see that for Jefferson and for Madison as well, 
The issue was not just religious freedom, but intellectual freedom. Jefferson wrote, Truth is great and will prevail if left to herself. She is the proper and sufficient antagonist to error and has nothing to fear from the conflict unless by human interposition she is disarmed of her natural weapons, free argument and debate. Let us engage in conversations in which we explore how the clash of ideas has benefited this country and how the ability to follow a thought wherever it may lead has led to a remarkable flourishing of invention and business and art. We might also meet to talk about valor and use as one of our resources, perhaps, one I've just discovered, it's a wonderful website, the website of the Congressional Medal of Honor Society. There are so many stories of heroism on it, so many stories of men throwing themselves on grenades or exposing themselves to enemy fire in order to save those near them. The honor roll of heroes is in the thousands now, but reading through it is a reminder of the enormous sacrifices that have been made for the sake of freedom. And listen, just listen to some of the names. John Ortega, Joshua Chamberlain, Abraham Cohn, Daniel Inouye, Jim, Joseph Timothy O'Callaghan, Joe Nishimoto, Mitchell Red Cloud Jr., Riley Pitts, Roy Benavidez, Jack Jacobs, Gary Gordon, Randall Shugart. Our liberty has depended on the valor of Americans whose forebears came from every part of the world. Let us remember their bravery with awe and talk about the inspiration we should draw from it. Not to be brave, not just to be brave in the smaller ways that our lives will probably demand, but also to recognize what they so heroically illustrated, that great deeds are not the province of any particular race, creed, or class. Let us talk about how our nation has grown better and stronger as this realization has become ever more central to our national life. And let us talk about the growing we still have to do. I've been thinking of these gatherings, these places where we have these conversations as, as teach-ins for freedom. But they needn't take place just on campuses. Public libraries would be a great place for them, and so would homes. Indeed, in their private lives, millions of Americans have shown their hunger to know more about our nation's history. They buy Stephen Ambrose's books. They watch TV series like the HBO production of Band of Brothers. Edmund Morris's Theodore Rex is unlikely to make it onto many college or university reading lists, but books of this kind and their older equivalents, I think of Daniel Borston's The Americans, books of this kind can be an entryway into our nation's past for young adults as well as for their parents. In the weeks since September 11th, I have had some very well-credentialed, relatively recent college graduates confess to me how little they know about American history. Is there a history for dummies book, one asked me half-jokingly? There may well be, but my recommendation will be to start with some of the thoughtful, well-written books that have received such wide acclaim. David McCullough's John Adams would be first on my list for the amazing job McCullough does of simultaneously conveying the significance of Adams' accomplishments and the warmth of his humanity. As for the children, 
Let us continue the efforts to improve history instruction in our schools. But while we work on that, let us also tell them the stories that might otherwise go untold. At our Thanksgiving table this year, we talked to our grandchildren about the pilgrims and about how hard it was to cross the ocean to an unfamiliar land and how the difficulty of their voyage was a measure of how much they wanted to worship God as they chose and have their children grow up in a way they thought was right. And at our Christmas table, we will, to be sure, talk about the baby born in Bethlehem and the angels who sang and the shepherds and kings who came to visit him. But we will also talk about George Washington and remember how, on a dark December 25th, he led his improbable army across an ice-choked river to give a people struggling for independence hope that they might one day be free. Thank you very much, Professor George, for having me here this afternoon. James Madison told us in words that I understand are now inscribed in, in Corwin Hall that a well-instructed people alone can permanently be a free people. The gatherings you have here at Princeton under the auspices of the James Madison program in American ideals and institutions contribute to our instruction and to our freedom. Thank you very much. Well, it's so uh, such a pleasure to be here with you and to see some, uh, I used to say old friends, but now I say friends of long standing. And uh, I, I will let you mercifully go unrecognized, but uh, I've uh, had a chance to, uh, to wave at you and I hope to speak to you later. I would be happy to take questions now. Yes. Yeah, the microphone would be helpful. Dr. Cheney, it seems to me that uh, at George Washington's time and soon after, people were hardly better instructed than we are today at a time when most people did not know how to write or read. And yet democracy was established and, and has endured since. How would you reconcile that? Well, that is an interesting question. I suppose that the uh, uh, thing that impresses me most as I read the founders is how convinced they all were that the democracy would not be long-lived unless education were uh, widely spread. Uh, Jefferson talked about it. Madison talked about it. One of my favorite quotes is from Madison, in which he said, uh, I'll get it a little wrong, but what more amazing spectacle than there could there be than liberty and learning, each leaning on each other for their mutual and surest uh, reward? So all of the founders, I think, understood rightly that uh, while education uh, may not have been as uh, widely spread among the population as it should be in the beginning, that only uh, with that kind of education could the democracy survive long. Yes. Uh, I have a question. A few years ago when my son was in high school, I mean, he, they actually did have a history book that 
discuss the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. In reading it, though, one of the more, I'll say, uh, publicly debated Bill of Rights items was discussed, and I believe in the editor's or author's editorial position. And I wonder, on your side, is it better to just have them get involved with it and let maturity uh, form their own opinions, or do we need to worry more about what they're reading up front? Well, I, I certainly plan to be aware of what my grandchildren are uh, reading um, as they go through school, and I, I did that with my children as well. The best-selling American textbook, there are many American textbooks used to teach history. Some of them do have a political viewpoint. The best-selling one is nearly as I could figure out from having spent a long time with it doesn't. Um, and it's uh, very balanced. Um, however, it's dull. And uh, this is also a problem. Um, to, to try to get everything into a textbook, and I'm not naming names, um, but to get everything into the textbook to be fair and balanced and to still have a narrative is a very difficult uh, thing to achieve. And that's almost... It's not as troubling as um, presenting history with a viewpoint, but when you present history so that it's dull, uh, it does not uh, encourage lifelong learning. So my recommendation is always get the kids reading the real books. Uh, even in fifth grade, you know they can read Johnny Tremaine. And when they get in high school, um, Johnny Tremaine, of course, is fictionalized, but it's, it's an accurate representation of the period. Uh, when they get in high school, give them John Adams. Give them Theodore Rex. Uh, give them some of the wonderful books that are being written and uh, consumed in uh, large quantities uh, by uh, older adults in the population because they are wonderful books. Uh, give them the stories is the point. Yes. Oh, I, I'm not looking up. I will look up, too. Um, you've talked a lot about the, the wonderful things that America has done in the past. I, I talked, talked about a lot about the wonderful things that American patriots have done in the past. How do we also address issues of the violence and brutality that has happened in American history? Well, I think we address it honestly. Um, certainly, um, uh, American history is not well taught if we don't understand the mistakes we've made as well as the uh, progress that we've made. Um, it does seem to me that when we talk about um, the errors and sins of the past, it's also very important for us to note the progress we have made. It does seem to me that the story of America is its own best recommendation and that you don't have to alter it or change it to encourage patriotism. Yes, we talk about slavery. But yes, we talk about the advance that we have made in terms of making sure that uh, uh, the concept of equality includes us all. Um, and we don't just talk about the negative sides. We talk about the wonderful progress we've made. At the risk of sounding partisan, I can't tell you how proud I am to see so many women in this administration. There was a piece on the news last night about women like Karen Hughes and Mary Madeline and uh, uh, Condoleezza Rice. Um, that's an amazing thing. You know, we couldn't vote until 1920. And now here we are, um, sitting around the tables where the most important decisions are being made. That part of the story needs to be told as well. Yes, in, in orange. 
which is a popular color here, right? Um, I read that the alumni or the American Council of Trustees and Alumni recently published a document uh, listing some anti-American statements made by scholars on, like, uh, university campuses. And I was wondering if you could justify this document in light of your belief in the importance of the freedom of political thought and the fostering of debate, especially at institutions like Princeton. Uh, the American Council of Trustees and Alums has a, uh, a bipartisan board of directors. Um, I was one of the founding chairmen along with Senator Lieberman. When my husband became vice president, though, I resigned, so I haven't been a part of this organization. I'm not familiar with this report in any detail. But I can say that um, free speech is a very important thing and that uh, anyone on a campus or any place in our society has a perfect right to say something as inflammatory as he or she would please. But other people have the right to say, are you sure you mean that? Are you sure that that thought is uh, anywhere related to the mainstream of American thought? Are you sure that that thought is sensible? So free speech works on both sides is my point. I have spent, I think, uh, as much of my career as I've been talking about cultural and campus issues defending free speech, which is one of the reasons I was so opposed and still am to political correctness because that's what political correctness does is uh, dampen free speech. And so uh, while I would surely defend the right of any alum on any, or any professor on any campus uh, in this country or around the world to express his or her opinion, I'd also defend the right of people to uh, dispute it when they disagree. Yes? Um, given what some of us perceive as a real lack of respect to civil liberties in our response to the domestic threat of terrorism. Uh, do you think that 20 or 30 years from now we'll be proud to teach uh, the next generation about uh, the way we've detained citizens or used secret military tribunals, etc.? Well, I hope in 20 or 30 years that the facts are reported accurately. This always seems to me to be uh, an important first step to making judgments. Uh, the military tribunal issue has nothing to do with citizens. It has to do with uh, people who are not citizens who are uh, charged with acts of terrorism. So somehow, I don't think in 20 or 30 years, um, when we compare the threat to this country um, to the um, issue of um, putting non-citizens who are charged with terrorism on trial before military tribunals, that there will be uh, any fuss about that at all. And I promised I'd look up. Okay, right there. Uh, you make a good case that we need more uh, time spent on American history in the curriculum. Uh, what would you propose to be cut, given that uh, time is finite? Well, I guess I would start with having um, a core of general education, which on many campuses uh, no longer exists. You know, it used to be that you had to take a core of courses in general education so that you would be, when you graduated, a well-rounded person when it came to uh, literature, when it came to history, when it came to science and mathematics. On many campuses, um, I wouldn't say most, but on many, that's entirely disappeared. On, and on most, it is a discipline that is so lax that it might as well have uh, disappeared. 
So I'm not suggesting um, that uh, you take fewer courses in your major. Um, I'm suggesting that there be a general education requirement uh, for all students so that uh, we can all participate in uh, a common conversation uh, as citizens of this country and graduates of its uh, fine academic institutions. I once published a booklet, it was called 50 Hours, in which I uh, very specifically uh, set out uh, how it was not only possible but pretty easy to have a well-rounded core of courses in general education and still fill uh, the requirements of uh, even the most demanding major. Engineering was a little tough, but uh, only engineering. Yes. You, you mentioned um, teach-ins in, in passing. There have been teach-ins on this campus recently, and in these teach-ins there's actually been a great deal of history education that has gone on, um, both providing extensive um, printed material for students to read and also having experts in various fields talking about recent American history, foreign policy, uh, as well as the history of Central Asia, the region where we're now at war. Um, you, um, in, in your brief mention of, of teach-ins, you've rather disparagingly commented that you weren't surprised that, in your opinion anyway, that, that few people had gone. And then you just said a moment ago that, uh, said something about the importance of basing our opinions on facts. And I'm just wondering what your opinions of these teach-ins are based on. Have you attended them? Are you familiar with the kinds of educational activities that they've provided to students? I would be surprised if I uh, were to read a report of a teach-in that presented a balanced view of um, uh, September 11th and the events that have uh, come from it, partly because the purpose of a teach-in is not to do that. Uh, the purpose of a teach-in is generally to protest, and that is indeed a fine thing to do. But I would suggest that people are more interested in students, as well as adults in the larger society, um, a balanced presentation, one that, uh, well, what is a teach-in by definition um, that aims to protest American policy? It uh, probably doesn't have someone representing the administration there. Now, it's possible, and if you can show me one that did, then I would be happy to say, well, that, uh, that surprises me, and perhaps I shouldn't have overgeneralized. I was uh, struck by uh, Don Kagan, who is a wonderful uh, faculty member at Yale, um, a man of uh, deep education, a classical scholar, who in the larger society would be regarded as a moderate or perhaps even a liberal, but on campus is considered a conservative. And uh, uh, his um, uh, response to um, activities that had gone on in his campus um, in response to September 11th was, why don't they ever invite anyone like me? And I do think that the educational opportunity is there, and it could be indeed a very good one if there were an effort to present uh, a spectrum of viewpoints rather than um, a narrow perspective. Have I run out? Thank you. Yes. I wonder if the case for teaching American history uh, couldn't be strengthened by 
a reflection on the role of the United States in the world stage today, so that you, you made the comment about Jefferson saying this started the ball of freedom rolling. But given the unique responsibilities the U.S. has today, um, it seems that the, the impetus to learn our history better needn't be something entirely self-regarding. It could be something to encourage us to, as it were, export a lot of the values, the respect for liberty and so on, uh, to, the, to the larger world. I wonder if you might comment on that. Um, well, I was, uh, my mind wandered as you were asking the question, um, because you first made me think of Stephen Ambrose's um, book, I think it's Citizen Soldier, in which he talks about uh, the young servicemen that we've sent around the world, uh, defending not only our own freedom, but in this particular case, he was talking about the freedom of Europe, and uh, the freedom of the world, really. But uh, these soldiers were in Europe. And he said, almost anywhere in the world, he wrote, if you see a squad of uh, 12 um, well-armed, uniformed 18-year-olds, the population uh, quivers in terror and hides, except when they're Americans. The American soldier came bearing candy and cigarettes, those politically incorrect times, candy and cigarettes and freedom. And uh, that, that is a remarkable thing. I think that our own self-regard would grow, in fact, were we to um, look carefully at the role we have played in uh, protecting freedom around the world. We uh, have time for just one more question. Yes. It's... I have a daughter who's in eighth grade, and um, right now she's taking American history, and uh, she finds it, uh, at least of course she's taking boring. So you come from the education viewpoint. What are your ideas of making it more interesting for the children so they would, you know, be more involved in it? Tell the stories. That, that's it. You know, don't try to make it relevant to the present day at every single minute. Um, it's, it's wonderful when you can bring the point around and say, you know, because George Washington managed to inspirit the revolution at this point and get through some hard times ahead, Valley Forge was still ahead of him. Um, we live the life we live today. But just the stories are so wonderful. And if you can find the books that tell the stories, or if you can tell the stories yourself. You know, if, if an eighth grader is too young to read Theodore Rex, uh, these are the books I'm currently reading, or I've just finished John Adams. If they're too young, then read them and talk about, ah, the wonderful relationship between um, uh, John Adams and Abigail. What a wonderful illustration of uh, family life. And talk about her bravery and how much she was alone. And uh, having, having to nurse her, her beloved servant through uh, one episode um, of illness after another. It, it's just a remarkably uplifting story. So I guess that's what I'd recommend. The history books have got a job to do that unfortunately turns them into encyclopedias. And so they aren't interesting. If you can't find the book that quite gets the stories across that the kids can read, then read the books yourselves and tell them the story. i, I got to tell you, my grandkids love it. They think it's just uh, the greatest thing to, uh, to talk about these topics that seem quite grown up and to begin to understand their place in the world. 
I don't mean to go on too long at the last question, but you know what we have done for a lot of time in this country is just sort of assume that grade schoolers can't do history, that they have to learn about their little community and they have to learn about their state, and these are important things, but they can do George Washington, and they love to do it if we'll just tell them the stories. Thank you for coming out on this rainy night and for having me here. Now, before I, uh, before I thank uh, Mrs. Cheney, uh, let me thank all of you, uh, particularly those who ask questions, and particularly those who ask questions with that sharp, critical edge. It's exactly that kind of question, that kind of the dialogue that is provoked by that sort of question that we want to achieve in a circumstance like the circumstance we're in in the university setting. When I saw that uh, the great... Uh, Alan Charles Coors from the University of Pennsylvania, the historian uh, and great campaigner for freedom of speech and also a father of one of my great outstanding students, was in the audience. I was a little worried that maybe we wouldn't live up uh, to the standards that someone like Professor Coors has, but I'll bet he's, uh, he's impressed, uh, and I think he deserves to be by the, uh, by the quality of the questions. Uh, let me say I feel a little bit like a pastor looking out uh, at the congregation at, uh, at Christmas time, saying I'm really pleased to see all of you here uh, want you to know that we have services at this church uh, every Sunday. Uh, we, uh, we do have lectures uh, very frequently in the James Madison uh, uh, program and, uh, of course, in the other wonderful programs here at the university. Uh, we have coming up soon, uh, uh, actually Monday at 4.30 in the Computer Science Building, Judge Marty Feldman from uh, Louisiana, uh, District, U.S. District Court in Louisiana, who's talking about the most controversial case in Modern American history, uh, I'll bet, which is Bush versus Gore. And then later, we have uh, Bill Galston, a very distinguished political theorist who was a uh, domestic policy advisor in President Clinton's administration who will be coming to visit us. And Charles Kessler, who's a great scholar of the American founder, uh, founding toward the end of the uh, academic year. Uh, to talk about uh, the Federalist Papers and their meaning for us today. Uh, and you're all invited to these. They're uh, certainly open to our students and graduate students and faculty and staff, but also to, uh, to members of the public. We have a website, the James Madison Program website, which you can get access to through the university uh, main website. Uh, in concluding, uh, let me ask uh, Mrs. Cheney, if she, Dr. Cheney, if she would again step forward so that we can give her a little gift. This is a... Uh, a paper, she, I'll bet she has a few paperweights, but here's another one <laughs> from the James Madison Program in American Ideals and, institution and Institutions, and it comes with our profound gratitude. Well, thank, thank you. Thank you, Mrs. Cheney. Thank you.